Help us to understand that we can't get to where you want us to get without you leading our lives. So God, I pray that you'll remind every single person in this room today that they're here uh, for your purpose and for a specific reason to be encouraged by you and to grow in a relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week, after we kicked off this series, and uh, again, last week specifically about, being, uh, about complaining, the problem with complaining, Monday I heard back from somebody at our union campus uh, about something they, they did with their family. And again, it's Monday, so they didn't waste any time. She sent me this picture. A jar with money already in it, and on the front, watch your mouth. Right, was the title of the series. Now, if you notice, I don't know how this played out. She didn't go into details. I don't know if there were issues of complaining or cussing. I don't know if there's soap involved. But I don't see coins. I see full dollars, right? So either they're strict and there's serious consequences or they've just gone off the rails right away. Either way, they're, they're getting it done and uh, understanding that, hey, we, we got to get this right. Right? When it comes to our words, the words that we use, uh, it, we can't just flippantly just speak them and move on with our lives, assuming that they had no consequence on the person on the receiving end or in ourselves. Because here's what we realized last week and what we have to understand uh, the rest of the series. Proverbs 18, 21, words kill, words give life. Pretty strong language, isn't it? This is how important, how powerful words are. It says they're either poison or fruit. You choose. So again... The words that we choose, the words that we choose to use, right, aren't just words. They're words that either take or give, destroy or give life. Now, my wife and I, you know, when it comes to criticism, you know, full disclosure, this past week we received uh, quite a bit of criticism from our five-month-old. A lot of negative feedback going on. Last Sunday night, we, uh, we decided we're going to, you know, make the transition to his room, his crib, right? It's full-on sleep training, cry it out, all right? Many of you parents have been down this road. You know it's not pleasant. So last Sunday night, put him in his crib, brand new place, right? Probably a little bit of culture shock, like, well, parents have abandoned me. This is not going well. And he cries for an hour and 17 minutes straight. I know, major bummer. And uh, we have the baby monitor where, you know, he's upstairs, we're downstairs, and you can, like, see, you know, him doing this thing and fits of rage and all that, and you can hear him, and let's just say we didn't really need to have the baby monitor on to, to hear him. So that was Sunday night. Uh, Monday night, hour and 37 minutes. He's like, all right, I think I can do better. We'll go for hour and 37, see. So it's like, okay, I don't know how long this is going to last. Uh, night three, uh, 21 minutes. Yeah, I'm impressed as well and was excited, except for the fact that uh, I was at a meeting and my wife navigated this on her own, so now I feel like I might be part of the problem. (laughs) So then comes night four, I'm like, oh man, am I going to just have to displace myself so that, you know, mom and son can have this transition time and all can be right in the home? And uh, Fortunately not, seven minutes. Seven minutes, just kind of close the loop, you know, things are going well here, but we've received a lot of negative feedback. He let us know how he felt. Right now, it's one thing, right? Parents, you know, there's differing cries, and if you get a sad cry, like, "Oh, my parents uh, don't care about me anymore. I'm never going to see them again." That's very hard to get through. But fortunately, this was like, uh, "I'm really angry. I'm going to let you know about it." Cry. Like he's just not getting what he wants, and so we could persevere. We could get through that. But when it comes to actual criticism, right? That's one thing that you can just, uh, you know, get that kind of feedback from your five-month-old and move on with your life. And fortunately, like my, I remind my wife of this often, he'll never remember this. But when it comes to the words that we hear the words that we uh, give or receive, uh, they stick with us for a long time. 
And even in the moment that we hear them, the moment in which we are hurt by words, we even downplay how much they affect us in the moment, let alone that we might carry these words for decades. Some of you are, right? You remember elementary school, words that have been spoken to you. But in that time, we respond in ways where we, you know, the walls go up, defense mechanism, and we say ridiculous lies like this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, they'll never hurt me. That's a lie, right? We know that now. That's a lie, but that's what we say in the moment. Here's another one. We said, when I was growing up, I'm rubber, you're glue. Anything you say, it bounces off me and sticks to you. Like, how ridiculous is that? right? We say it just in the moment as a kid, like, oh, your words don't affect me. Whatever you say is just coming back to you. Somebody calls you a name, right? When you're a kid, hopefully not when you're a dog because it's really immature, but here's what we would say. I know you are, but what am I? Ooh. Zinger, right? Ultimate put down there. But again, the reality of some of the things that were said to us in that moment, even though we flippantly threw one of those ridiculous phrases back at that person, it hurt. And it's continued to hurt over the years. It's continued to affect the way that you see yourself, right? And you start to doubt who you are. So we have a long way to go, right? And understanding how powerful our words are. Chad Cadell, who, pre, who uh, teaches for us regularly, um, and the reason why I haven't addressed the Union Campus is because he's teaching live there uh, today. Some of you are like, oh, bummer, should have gone over there. It'll be online. If you don't know Chad Cadell, he's hilarious, and so we worked on this message together, but obviously they're, they're different because, you know, Chad has his own personality, and so if you want to double up on criticism this week, you can watch Chad's message online. So in preparation for this message, he asked a question on Facebook about words that have been hurtful to you, um, but also words that have been helpful, that have given you life. So this is disheartening, to say the least, and some of you may have responded to him on Facebook, and I want to read through um, a list of things that have been spoken into people's lives. And you hear this and you, you're like, you feel it yourself, even though it wasn't directly spoken to you, but maybe there were other things that were similar that you're carrying with you. So he asked, what are some life-taking words that have wounded you? Here's what people said. No one will ever want to be with you. That was the worst performance I've seen in 25 years of teaching. You're just not smart enough. You lost the game for us tonight. You're damaged goods. Why can't you be more like your sister? I wish you were never born. You will never amount to anything. You and your brother were just in the way of me living my life. No one will ever want to marry you. Now, unfortunately, as probably almost all of us in the room know, these are the kinds of things that the people closest to us say in the midst of high emotion. And they probably regret them. Hopefully they do, but they're still out there and they still affect us. And they can continue to affect us you know, for our entire lives if we don't have a proper understanding of the grace of God. One person that responded to Chad, Chad through a private message said the most hurtful words she ever received were from her ex-husband who looked at her and said, you don't matter to me. You could die tomorrow, and I wouldn't care. It's unbelievable, right? The person that she's closest to, that she's in a marriage relationship with, and it was her ex-husband, and she remarried, and the person she remarried, uh, she also shared this. She said, uh, the most uplifting words spoken to me were from my late husband. That's what she said. And here's what he said to her. The weekend, 
or he, she said, the weekend he was diagnosed with cancer, he took me to the mountains and spent a whole weekend praying for me and affirming me and who I am in Christ. She said, I still remember his arms around me saying, you have made me so happy. Level of intentionality, saying something that should probably be said almost daily, affected her and will continue to affect her in the best way possible. Words destroy, but fortunately, words can also give life. Proverbs 12, 18, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. This is what we get to do as a church, right? We'll just play church. We'll just, you know, everybody be nice, right? And live your life, stay in your lane, right? Don't, don't affect anybody. Like, no, we, need to, we get to enter into people's lives and through our words, which is so easy, should be, our very words get to bring healing. All that to say, you don't need to come to church to know, you look around the world, we have to do better. We have to do better. 79% of employees who quit their jobs cited the reason being a culture of criticism and a lack of encouragement. This is no surprise to many of you who've transitioned jobs. You're like, yeah, this is a critical culture. Uh, you know, it even uh, you know, facilitates more criticism. It's just negative all around. And there's zero encouragement. It's not healthy, right? It's draining. It's life-taking, not life-giving. Criticism is a primary destroyer of the marriage relationship, right? So loud and clear with the person who, who shared that. And sometimes the most hurtful things are from our spouse. And so uh, marriage therapist John Gottman several years ago did research into uh, what's like he called the magic ratio. Like if there's a you know, certain number of positive things said you know, to your spouse versus the number of negative things said to your spouse. And he said that what he landed on through his research, the magic ratio is five to one. For, you know, all right, five positive things spoken to your uh, spouse, and if there's one negative thing, like that would be that would be a healthy relationship. He also said one to one is like that's cascading into divorce, right? Unfortunately, a lot of people have like zero positives to one negative, but he said even one positive to one negative ratio, right? That's nearly guaranteed divorce. So the research that him and his team did in 1992 is uh, they observed 700 couples for 15 minutes each. And the only criteria that he used to assess the health of their relationship was this magic ratio. For 15 minutes, they observed, what was it? Was it, you know, somewhere in that five to one? And then they predicted who would get divorced and who wouldn't. Ten years later, they found that they had predicted with 94% accuracy who would get divorced and who wouldn't. Based on a observing a 15-minute conversation, simply on not what they said, but how they said it to each other, right? Positive and negative. Now, just to close the loop on this conversation, it's not just about... All right, you know, just going to kind of suppress everything and not, you know, be, you know, fully open about what I think about my spouse. This is interesting because he, what they found is if you get beyond like a 13 to 1 ratio, that's also unhealthy. Because then you have a point where people probably aren't being fully honest with each other, right? They're just in an overly agreeable relationship where they're just trying to keep the peace, so to speak, and really suppressing things. That can be unhealthy as well. Now, we can stop there, but I think, you know, unfortunately, we need to kind of dig even deeper to understand at what length this is truly a problem, because I think it's even bigger than what we realize when we make co criticism commonplace. Yes, it's a destroyer of relationships, but James 1.26 can be disheartening as well. It says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless lest we think we can get away with playing church. 
Yeah, I go to church. Yeah, I got my church. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I know God. Yeah, I love God. But it's not reflected in the way that I live, more specifically the way that I talk. Now, in this culture, this day and age, the word religious would have been a positive connotation. It's not in our day and age. But, you know, think of it. If I'm following Christ, if I'm living a surrendered life to Christ, then it's going to be reflected in the words that I use. So if I say that I'm following Christ, if I've surrendered my life to him, yet I still have a, a heart or a spirit of, uh, you know, spitefulness and bitterness and, and being critical, constantly tearing others down, my faith could easily be an empty show. Because my life, my words are going to be different. They're going to sound differently if I'm truly living for Christ. James chapter 3, verses 9 to 12. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. That's what we just did. We came in here and we sang like, all right, I'm at church, I'm singing. But with the same tongue, the rest of verse 9 says, with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness, by the way, which we'll return to. Verse 10, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water, naturally. So, polluted water and pure water cannot pour out of the same stream. Which means if praise to God and criticism of others flows from the same mouth, which it does, there must be something wrong with the source. What is the source? Our heart. As we talked about last week. This series called Watch Your Mouth. The problem isn't our mouth. That's not the root of the problem. It's our heart. Matthew 12, 34. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Just give it the right time and the right circumstance. Right? What you speak comes from somewhere, right? We're just like, wow, where did that, I don't know where that came from. No, it's, it's been building up, right? There's bitterness and resentfulness and, and hurt within our heart, and it eventually comes out in our mouth. Now, let me go a little bit deeper, but at the same time provide a little bit of levity with a, a picture that I found. Because as we think about, again, we're going to continue to go as deep as possible to understand the why. I want to know why. I mean, if I have a critical spirit, where it's actually coming from. And we get this, but we don't, we don't think about it often. Our criticism of other people, when we decide to, be, decide to be judgmental to someone else about something in their own life, oftentimes reflects more about ourselves than it does them. Right? We've been there. Oftentimes we're easy. We're, it's easy to judge. We're really good at judging other people about something that maybe we're insecure in our own lives. And so, you know, when it comes to heart work, we got some serious introspective heart work to do first. So with a little bit of levity, here's going back to the rubber and the glue statement. Here you have rubber serving as the counselor to glue, which is funny there. At first glance, this is funny, but then you, you realize, yeah, that's actually true. Glue is saying to rubber, so when I say I hate you, what I'm really saying is that I hate myself. Now, that's funny, but if you really dig deeper, you're like, yeah, there's something in within me that I need to pay attention to, that I have the capacity at all to be critical, to even worse, be hateful towards someone else. It's a very dangerous place to get. And so oftentimes the reason why we're critical has less to do with how someone is acting or behaving and more to do with what's actually happening within us, within our heart. My mom uh, told me uh, several years ago about a conversation she had with my kindergarten teacher where criticism took place. I wasn't aware of it at the time. But I'm five years old, right? You know, a little kindergartner, and I'm the oldest of, of three kids, the first one going through the school system. And uh, Mrs. Dieter, at the time, told my parents, if Darren doesn't start behaving, he's going to end up at White's Institute. This is like an alternative school for teenagers. Five years old. Now, I didn't find out about this conversation until several years later. My mom likes to remind me that my dad told me that this conversation happened. And 
reminded me again last week, like, okay, mom, doesn't matter. I'm good, right? It's been a long time since I was five years old. You know, I didn't have to go through counseling or anything like that. But my mom and my dad, they're like, oh, no. Wow, we're terrible parents. This is what you do. When you receive criticism, you start to jump to irrational conclusions. What are we doing wrong? We shouldn't have any more kids. We need to, you know, switch schools. But here's my point. What is it about a kindergarten teacher (laughs) who, from my perspective, at least in this area, you know, some of the nicest people in the world, that would even have that thought, that sense of hopelessness when they they look upon a little five-year-old and deem the rest of their life their future, right? When we have the capacity to look through the lens of criticism or judgment towards someone else, there's something that's going on within us, Right? maybe has been there for a long time that we've never properly dealt with. And so this, right, we get this. This becomes a bad habit, the way in which we look upon the world. So when we talk about a critical spirit, here's, here's the, my favorite definition that I came across. Counselor Shannon McCoy, she said, A critical spirit is a negative attitude of the heart that seeks to condemn, tear down, and destroy with words. Sounds terrible that we would even have the desire to destroy one, but this is what we do with our words. But see, a critical spirit operates under the false belief that one's sense of significance is increased when pointing out the wrongs of others. This is the, the root of the problem that we don't always get to, that we're not even always aware of. The reason why when we're kids and we find ourselves surrounded by other kids and one of the kids in the group does something that's worthy of being made fun of, we pounce on them. Why? Not because we're necessarily mean-spirited. That's not what's driving us. It's the approval of others. If the people around me, right, at the lunch table or my group of friends, if they laugh at what I said in making fun of this kid, oh, man, they think I'm funny, right? All of us, this is a natural desire for every single one of us. We want to matter. We all want to have significance. But lest we go down this destructive avenue of criticism so that we feel better about ourselves, That's our aim, you know, to discover our own significance. It's very destructive, right? Dysfunctional and immature on our own to ourselves, but also destructive to the people around us. I mean, we've all lived this out. We've seen it. Maybe we've experienced it ourselves. Critical people can also be very defensive when criticized themselves. They're not secure enough with their own identity to absorb it, right? And so oftentimes the most critical people are the most defensive when they themselves are criticized. And they'll spout out things You're like, whoa, where where did that come from? (laughs) It's happening beneath the surface. That bitterness and resentment, they're not secure enough, they're not comfortable enough in their own skin. So they're constantly trying to prove themselves, and one of those destructive avenues is through criticism itself. So oftentimes the people we are most hurt by are the ones who have never properly dealt with their own hurt. That's why we're all familiar with the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people are often critical, acting like porcupines, right? You get too close, right? And they, they spout out, and that's when we're surprised. Like, wow, I, you know, what I said was hurtful to them. Might not even been, you know, purposeful, but what they responded, like, right, it stabs you in the heart. Critical spirit doesn't appear out of nowhere, though, does it? You just wake up one day, and you're a critical person. This is where we have to pay attention to the homes that we grew up in. Our primary influencers, think about nature and nurture. If you grew up in a critical home, Naturally, you're going to be inclined to be a critical person, right? We're shaped by the norms surrounded, uh, you know, in our growing up years, for better or for worse, and almost always both. And so one of my first questions when I'm doing premarital counseling is, tell me about your parents, family of origin, right? Because if that's the only picture you've seen, that's the picture you're going to repeat. That's what you deem to be normal. 
again, we're shaped by that. And so parents, you get this, right? Parents have been longer, parents longer than I have. Uh, you know, more is caught than taught, so to speak. And so they observe the way that you interact with your spouse, the way that you observe, talk to other people, and you can tell them anything you want. And the kids, no, you don't behave that way. And they're like, wait a second. I, I just saw you, heard you do the opposite, you know, with, with mom or dad or with the neighbor. Maybe, maybe when I get to be an adult, I can talk like that. I can be like that. Maybe that's just a kid thing that you're telling me, right? And so you're teaching them by your own behavior. So naturally, we can't expect someone to copy behavior they've never even seen. And so this is why we have conversations like this. This is why we're connected in relationship, because people that grow up in dysfunctional, critical environments or homes need to understand that that is not the norm. And unfortunately, there's a lot to overcome. You know, for that person who might be 40, 50, 60, and that's all they've known, we need to understand that there's a healthier avenue. That's not how you navigate relationships. Now, the root of the problem, this is the primary takeaway for today and what we have to understand the context of what God calls us to. The root of the problem, the cause of our criticism, is ultimately the result of us trying to find our significance apart from the grace of God. There's a disconnect between proper understanding of the grace of God that is present in our lives and the way that we are responding to humanity around us. Us guys can typically be more inclined to anger because one of our deepest desires is to be respected. And as soon as we're disrespected, it's a hit on our significance, our identity. And so we mistakenly you know, attach it to that and it you know, comes out as anger or passive aggressiveness or sarcasm. It's only when we rest in the grace of God, right? You take away one thing, this is it. Only when we rest in the grace of God, understanding how much grace we have been shown ourselves, will we be inclined to bestow grace on others and see people like God sees them, right? Our, our role in you know, everyday life is not to be judge and jury and just pronounce upon people what it is that they're doing wrong. <laughs> What's at the root of that is improper understanding of the grace we get to walk in every single day because of the person of Jesus Christ. The more in tune we are with that, the better we'll look through the lens of grace as we interact with the people around us, literally the world around us. Now, longtime Christians, you might be saying, hold up, what about Matthew 18, 15? Right, man, I think you're kind of leaving some stuff out. Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Some of you are like, man, that's my thing. I'm good at that. That's a spiritual gift, right? Like, I see what's wrong. and like, man, I'm the first one in line. Like, hey, I just want to let you know. That's not a spiritual gift, by the way. You need a different assessment. That is not a spiritual gift. But it's worth mentioning two specific things. Number one, first notice, this would always be done in private and not public. We're very good at public criticism, especially now with the social media world. Like, all right, yeah, I'll get some likes on my comments, right? And we're going to kind of feed the monster. I want everybody else to pounce on this person. It's like dangerous territory. So it should always be done in private, not public. But even more importantly, notice the brother or sister part. There's an existing relationship where credibility and trust have been established. So we're going to go the rest of our lives, and we're going to look at the people around us and see their fault. But that doesn't mean you're the best person to go to them and let them know their fault. You might be if you've established the relationship, if trust is foundational, you've spent the time to earn the right to speak into somebody's life, right? So they understand that when you do come to them, you care more about them than you do about proving them wrong, letting them know how badly they're living or how they're going off the rails. They know you care about them first and foremost. I mean, why do, we, why do we so often think we have earned the right to speak so harshly into a stranger's life? 
<laughs> this happens all the time, you know, on social media. We lose sight of the, the people that we're judging, that we're criticizing, that they're actually people. <laughs> How many times has that actually made things better? Last week, I was talking to uh, one of our uh, um, church family members that's running for local political office, and he said right from the very beginning, I decided that I'm not going to go down the avenue of tearing my opponent down, right, trying to find dirt, dig up dirt, make up dirt, right? That's what we do, right? Just, hey, here's, here's their dirt. They're a bad person. That's why I should be in this position. <laughs> like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to tear that down because he understands if he goes down that avenue and he wins through those means, he's actually losing at life itself. The life that Christ has in mind for him, to live above reproach, to go about things the right way, to respect literally everyone. Yes, he wants to win. Yes, he wants his opponent to lose. But he's not going to demean the person that he's trying to beat as a primary way of winning. Now, what if my criticism is helpful? It's meant to be helpful. You're like, oh, I've got a good idea for this person. I feel like if they had this information I want to give to them, their life would be better. Well, here's your measurement. This is important to know. Ephesians 4.15 says, speak the truth in love. When you speak the truth, make sure it's always wrapped in love. I mean, do I, in that moment, do I get more excited about being critical or being caring? Because oftentimes when we instinctively judge, right, and this is why, you know, the church isn't, church at large, right, worldwide isn't growing at a rampant pace because the world looks at the church at large as just being judgmental. Well, it's just a place where they tell me all that I'm getting wrong, all that I need to change. I can't blame some people because we get so enthusiastic about being critical and judgmental with the, to the world around us when we should be more enthusiastic about being caring, about being loving, meeting people where they are, and letting them know that God has hope in mind for them as well. We're not always the best representation of that kind of hope. So am I more enthusiastic about picking someone up or pushing them down? Here's our goal as we get practical and turn the corner and finish this. Ephesians 4, 29. This is the, because let me be clear, this isn't like, all right, now just, go out today and stop criticizing, right? This isn't behavior modification because the issue is not our mouth, it's our heart. And so we need tools. We need to be proactive. And the way that we can do that is reflected in Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only, only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Another translation says that it may give grace to those who hear. Again, this is, a, this is a, honestly an exciting conversation, understanding the opportunity that we have to give people life through mere words. And according to this scripture, when we encourage people, when we lift them up, we look to build others up through our words, we're giving them the gift of grace. We get to display the very grace of God through the words that we use. No such thing as just words. We get to give gifts of grace. But notice that scripture also said build others up according to their needs. This is what requires great discipline, right? How often do we see somebody that we're critical of or that we we're judgmental toward, and we don't even take the time, we don't even cross our mind to think about, what, kind of, what, are, what do they need in their life, right? But that's what the scriptures reveal, and the place that we have to get to, the lens we have to look through. See, those with a critical spirit rarely focus on the needs of others. They don't care enough to even think about what the person they're judging harshly actually needs. All they see, all we see when we're critical of others is that person's faults. Right? We, we look at them, and they're the culmination of their faults. It's far from grace, isn't it? So critical people often don't actually even think they're critical. They just think they're right. <laughs> we place so much passion and energy behind trying to prove other people how right we are. 
But we need to realize that every time we criticize someone, we end up prioritizing being right over the right relationship. We sacrifice influence. There's no, there's no gain from that. So if you want to have a more caring spirit than a critical spirit, then choose to be someone who builds others up. Simply put, be an encourager. Encourage literally means to cause another to be confident. Isn't that great? To cause another to be confident. Hopefully all of us have people in our lives, looking back, right, since we were a kid, people that stepped into our lives, and because of the way that they encouraged us, we walked with our heads held higher. We're more confident in life. Because there are people pushing us along, lifting us up, building us up in the best way possible. So, number one, surround yourself with people who want you to succeed. It's hugely important. But also make sure you are becoming the kind of person who truly wants the people around you to succeed. And they know. People know. They're smarter than we give them credit for in our interactions, right? Whether or not you sincerely want them to win at life. And that you want to be a primary cheerleader in their life. And then choose to make encouragement a regular part of your day. Hebrews 3.13 says, encourage one another daily. This isn't like, hey, we're going to have Project Encouragement Week. It's like, no, this is daily life. This is a way of life. This is who we are. We're encouraging others daily. But it begins with changing the way we see people. Not just changing our words, it's changing our heart. When our hearts change, we have better vision. And we see people like God sees people, three specific ways. Everyone you see, we understand, has been made in the image of God. Like, everyone. (laughs) It's a big deal. Secondly, everyone you see has value in God's eyes. Every person that we are critical of or mad at or disagree with or don't even want them, we just want them to be forgotten about, that person, whoever that is in your mind currently, has value in God's eyes. God says they matter. Thirdly, everyone you see, God is pursuing a relationship with them. Everyone you see, God is pursuing a relationship with. He wants to reconcile to the point of being in relationship with them. He doesn't write anybody off. This is good news for a lot of people maybe coming to church for the very first time. You've been written off by by the people. You don't believe that there is that kind of grace and love out there, but there is. I want to close with a story because I love how the story communicates the fact that a little bit goes a long way. A little bit of encouragement goes a long way. Author Tim Sanders, several years ago, I heard him tell a story about a guy at a software company uh, who had heard Tim uh, Sanders speak and talk about the importance of valuing others in the workplace. And this young manager named Steve at this company admitted he had not seen his reports face-to-face in over six months. This was unusual because they worked in the same building on the same floor. It's frankly embarrassing. So Steve decided he would personally visit all six of his people and tell them one great thing about their work. A month later, Tim Sanders received an email from Steve with the subject line, Xbox Story. Here's how Tim Sanders tells the story. Steve went to all six of his people and told them why he appreciated them. One thing they do wonderfully. One of his software engineers, Lenny, came in the next day and presented him with a wrapped gift, an Xbox gaming console. Steve wondered how Lenny could afford such an extravagant gift given his pay cuts over the last year. He asked Lenny, where did you get the money for such a great gift? Lenny looked him straight in the eye and said, I sold my 9mm pistol, boss. This got the attention of Steve, naturally. Lenny continued. You never asked, so I never told you. I moved here from Denver last year after my mom died. She was my best and only friend. I never made friends here, either at work or in my apartment building. So after three months, I got totally depressed. 
I went to a pawn shop and bought a chrome-plated pistol and a handful of bullets. I started a routine every night after work of eating a bowl of ramen, listening to Nirvana, and getting the gun out. He said it took almost a month to get the courage to put the bullets in the gun. It took another couple of months to get used to the feeling of the barrel of the gun on the top of my teeth. And for the last few weeks, I was putting ever so slight pressure on the trigger. Then last week, you freaked me out. That's what he's telling his boss. You came into my cubicle, put your arm around me, and told me you appreciated me because I turn in all of my projects early, and that helps you sleep at night. You also said that I have a great sense of humor over email and that you are glad I came into your life. So that night I went home and ate ramen and listened to Nirvana. And when I got the gun out, it scared me silly for the very first time. Said all I could think about was what you said. that You were glad I came into your life. The next day I went back to the pawn shop and sold the gun. I remember that you wanted the Xbox game worse than anything, but with a new baby at home, you couldn't afford it. So for my life, you get this game. Thanks, boss. Steve had no idea. Many of us, most of the time, have no idea what's happening beneath the surface of a person's life and how little it would take to speak life into their life and giving them life through those words could literally change their life and, in this scenario, save a person's life. Steve had no idea the weight of his words. But a little bit goes a long way. Proverbs 18, 21, the tongue has the power of life and death. Words can give life. This, is, this should be very good news, right? There's a lot at stake. When we understand practically that to encourage, to choose to encourage another is to literally give life. To encourage is to give life. But again, we need better vision. We need to see people like God sees people so that we see the good in them, not first the faults. We can encourage Lift someone up, giving them life. So this week, send a text, send a card, email, invite somebody to lunch. Do the small thing, understanding how significant it might be. <laughs> Enter into people's lives. Take initiative. Lift them up, encourage them, and remind them how much value they have. They matter. Everyone has significance because the grace of God covers us all. May we be great representations of that actual grace that people may not even realize. Let's pray. Father, in these moments we consider your vision for our lives, not our own. I pray that you'll.